See, I did people that didn't have a job. I mean, I, I was doing drug dealers, escorts. Uh, I put people down as a dog walker, a house cleaner, uh, the escorts, uh, home and personal care services. Uh, whatever your hustle was, if you're stealing copper, you know, I put you down for recycling, uh, aluminum cans. <laughs> you know, I had a title for everything, you know. If you're breaking in houses, you're, you're doing house cleaning. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Uh, if you're just uh, sitting home, at, at sitting at a crack house, babysitting. Then the manager of the bank got in on a deal. He started referring me people. And um, so all the people at that Wells Fargo bank got fired. Uh, like, like, you know, five or six <laughs> Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm here with Sean Cowgill. Got out a few years ago, started a prison channel. He was locked up for wire fraud, and he's got an interesting story, which we're about to hear, so check it out. Yeah, yeah I got off probation December 23rd, so that was my early Christmas present. Three years probation. Three years? So you've been out three years. Yeah, well, sick. I got, you know, if you count halfway house time, three and a half, and then December was, like, five months ago almost. So close to four years now, I mean, out of the prison, you know. Right. I went, to, I went to the camp of uh, Florence in Colorado, and then our, my day job was at the Supermax, and then you come back to the camp at night. <laughs> All right, so so what, I mean, where were you? Were you raised in Florida? No, no, no. I, 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 it was Florence, Colorado, but no, I was uh, born and raised in San Francisco. So you were born in San Francisco? Yeah. And... Um, just normal childhood. Uh, no, none at all. Uh, mean old father, drunk, wife beater, child beater. Uh, uh, you know, uh, pretty pretty bad uh, raising. Mom was a drunk. Dad was a drunk. Uh, they got divorced when I was about ten. But my mom, we we spent years running from my dad, and he'd find us here and there. And uh, it wasn't the best childhood. Lived in a uh, pretty bad neighborhoods. And mom uh, really had, was a housewife for a long time, and then. She decided, got the courage to run for my dad and uh, lived in these really, uh, really bad neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the VFW of San Francisco, that stands for very few whites. <laughs> right. So, so what, so, I mean, your mom, you're saying your mom was also an alcoholic though. She was an alcoholic and, uh, you know, and, and a battered wife. And, uh, but uh, that's one thing I kind of, try now is to i'm i kind of i don't know i have, i've had women on my show that are battered but trying to you know i guess uh put all that trauma behind them and it's tough it's it's a real tough thing it still goes on today but i i lived it so i know what it's like my, my father uh he died while i was in prison and uh, i didn't really cry so right i did a little yeah. i did a little because i you know i made i'm Made some amends with him before I went in, but he never made amends with me. So, um, so I mean, you went to high school. Were you in trouble? Trouble? Were you? Yeah, kind of. Uh, well, I didn't get start getting into trouble till after high. Well, I didn't start getting caught till after high school, but I started getting into drugs pretty early. Uh, smoking pot in summer of sixth grade. I remember smoked my first joint. Didn't really like it, but uh, I used to get beat up a lot when you're. When you're living in these neighborhoods and, uh, like I said, very few white kids, you get beat up a lot. But when I started smoking the pot, they all left me alone. I was like one of them. They took everything changed like overnight. So in my mind, I thought, well, if I hang out with these guys and do drugs, I, I won't get beat up no more, you know. And I, and I don't know if that's true or not or maybe it was all in my head. But, uh, you know. Well, I, you're uh, trying to fit in. Trying to fit in, trying to fit in. And I eventually did. I eventually did. Were you selling drugs or just buying them? I mean, no, like, I'm just you... buying them, just buying them. I just, not even then, I was just, people would just give me, give me drugs. You know, when you're 12 or 13, you don't got no money for that. But I think I went to like 11 different schools, uh, elementary, junior highs, high schools, because we were always running from my dad. He finally, he finally caught us in, uh, he bought a, he sold, sold a house and bought a bar. And my mom went right back to him because of that bar. She's an alcoholic. That's like showing up with a big bag of crack. Hey, look what I got, you know? Right. So, and that lasted a few years till they drank the bar away <laughs> and they lost everything again. But my, yeah, my I don't dad know why. found a way to recover. I don't know why people do that. I knew a, a guy that was a recovering alcoholic who bought a bar, you know, within six months, he's, he's drinking again. And, you know, six months later, the bar is gone. It's like, why would you have put yourself in that situation to begin with? 
Yeah, why not back a crack house in a meth lab too? If you're, if long as you, you know. <laughs> um. So, so you go through high school. Did you ever get in trouble in high school? No, no trouble. Uh just Other got more, just... got you know, more drugs. Uh, a little cocaine, LSD. A lot of LSD was my way of escaping. Uh, you know, going to Grateful Dead concerts at like sixteen, and you know, tripping on acid. I did that kind of stuff, but uh, not not like daily, but uh. Yeah, I you know I finally finished high school, um, but I did. I worked at a hotel. My first job out was a Marriott hotel, and I've kind of been in restaurant and hotels for I don't know, a good twenty something years. Uh, but you know, I started getting really heavy, uh, bad into crack cocaine in, the, in like the ni- late ninety eight, late eighties, nineties. I mean, so bad that uh, I ended up homeless a couple times, and being homeless is what got me to prison. That's that's Whoa. another story, but. I, uh, you know, I'd worked a couple of years at a, at different hotels and I've worked my way up to like food and beverage manager. And, you know, uh, I was a how, head chef. how do you go from smoking pot to smoking crack? Uh, gateway drug. Is it true? I, I went from smoking pot to, to LSD and magic mushrooms and masculine and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, in, in high school, all the kids would bring these different pills from their older brothers. There was like stuff like yellow jackets and Christmas trees and, Reds and beans and uh, cross tops and all, all these different pills we would pop. Uh, and, uh, Black beauties, and they were kind of like uppers. And I remember I always liked those. And it was kind of like the poor man's cocaine. So one day I found out I, I uh, found somebody who had cocaine. And a couple years later, somebody told me you could take that cocaine and you can cook it up. And it's called Freebase. And that was really expensive. I only tried it a couple times. And crack came out on the market. And a friend of mine said, hey, you got to come down this neighborhood you just pull up any time of the night they'll i don't care if you got five dollars twenty dollars you don't got to call the guy first you can set nothing up you just pull drive in your car walk over there they'll sell you this that free base it's already made up and everything you just put it right in your pipe and you smoke it i was like wow really <laughs> you know i was sold because it so, was hard to get that stuff before before crack came out and, and then it wasn't it took me a year or two before you end up homeless and losing everything and you know s- selling your I mean, I see people literally selling their mother out on the streets to get another hit. It's pretty bad. Um. Okay, so how, how so how long did that go on for you? Oh, probably you ten years. Probably, I, I, I went years. in and out of drug rehabs and homeless three or four times. I didn't stay homeless long. I'd get a job at McDonald's or Jack in the Box, kind of work my way out. I'd be, be homeless maybe a month, and I I'd either go to a shelter or a, a residential drug and alcohol program i kind of use those as shelters so my, my thing was to lose everything get desperate so i could get strong again to get everything back so i could get high again and sabotage it all and go back and just an endless cycle yeah you know? um and that went on for 10 years i mean and, and it, so how old were you at that point Oh, 30s. Um, I haven't touched crack now in probably, God, almost 20 years. Well, I, I, there's a cure for crack cocaine. All the rehabs and stuff, it's called crystal meth. <laughs> so That got me off the crack. So then 10, 10 years of that. So now I haven't done anything like that in 9, nine 10 years now. More than that. Yeah, 10 years. But you're not, you weren't selling it. Never sold it. Never sold. I tried once, and I, I I was my own best customer. So how does that lead into your? I mean, were you ever arrested for it? Yeah, arrested? eleven times. I didn't know how many times I've been to jail, but when uh, they were uh, when I was getting indicted, they asked me how many times I've been to jail. I said I don't know, five or six. They said, well, it says here eleven. We just wanted to check uh, for just little quarter grams, half grams. Nothing more than fifty dollars worth of worth of it. Always a traffic stop. Always in a car, going to get something for somebody else, and they're going to give me a little piece of it or something, or giving somebody a ride to get something. Whoop, getting pulled over. Uh, when because the neighborhoods I would go to, when you know, when a white guy's driving in a black neighborhood, they just swoop up on you. And they weren't. I wasn't driving the best cars or anything else. And uh, you know, and I lived in the neighborhood, but they, the cops didn't care. They, I got pulled over a lot. A lot, so uh, and usually I had something on me, so uh, it wouldn't matter if I refused for them to search the car. Uh, and in those neighborhoods, they uh, they'll just bring the dogs on the car, and if the dog waves waves his uh 
lifts his left paw or wags his tail. They say, oh, there's a sign. And what are you going to take it to court and steer word against the uh, trained canine officer? Right. So, and they did find crack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it'd be different if they didn't find anything. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be going to court then. I wouldn't right. have to. Um, um, all right. So, so what happened? So, I mean, you're running out of money. You're, you're getting, you're losing jobs. You're getting jobs again. You're getting, you know, periodically getting yourself back on your feet. Yeah. And, I've, I've had really good jobs, you know, ma managers and, you know, like I said, um, head chefs, all that, but I worked my way up and, uh, I don't think it's go good and I want to celebrate. I don't know. Um, it's, it's been an endless cycle. I think I kind of broke that cycle. Because prison, I, I'm going to say, probably saved my life. Because I got off the crack and I got on the crystal meth. And uh, with, the, with the stuff I was doing, which I, I haven't got into yet, I you know, had, I had plenty of money. And I was just always had a bag of crystal meth. And every single day I was using that stuff. And so bad that I went to the hospital once because my heart. And they said, they kept me there. And they said, your blood pressure is like 240. And I said, excuse me? Yeah, they said, you, you, what are you doing walking? You know, and. I had never been in a hospital in five, 10 years. So uh, if I didn't stop, I was probably going to die. So I, I kind of thank the feds for that one. Yeah. All right. So what were you doing to support your habit toward that got you in trouble at some point? I mean, well, I've just always worked at restaurants and blown my whole paychecks on, on drugs, but um, uh, you know, I buy some things and car here and there, but what, what brought me to prison was uh, doing, taxes for all those drug addicts and homeless guys that are out on the streets. Yeah. I was kind of smart on computers and stuff. So, uh, you know, um, uh, a lot of the crimes that you guys talk about on your show, I've done all that, that credit card stuff and check, uh, you know, I did, I've, I've, I want to say dabbled in a few things, you know, uh, mailbox fishing, you know what that is? Yeah. With the wrap paper and a fishing line and, so how, how, how did you, like, what was the first like fraud that you were committing? Uh, bad checks, making phony checks, uh, with magnetic ink on a computer and uh, just getting some account number and, uh, you know, recopying the check. And, uh, I had other people going in the banks to cash it, but, uh, one time a guy was taking a little bit too long and I thought I should, I was outside and, uh, I let, I, I waited too long and he had already went to that bank like five times. He didn't tell me. So red flag went up and they came. I don't know if he pointed to me or whatever, but, uh, they swooped on me and they found like checks that had Mickey mouse and Donald duck made out to him. Those were my practice checks and that's all they needed. So I got six months on that one in jail. Um, that's the only, that's the only fraud I ever got caught for. I did a lot, a lot of credit card fraud and stuff. Um, when you say credit card I, fraud, what do you mean? Like, how did that, how does that? Well, happen? there was these drug dealers that needed a, they would take a, they had, a, they had credit card numbers, but they didn't, and they would put them on a different card, right? You know, clone, a, not really clone a card, but they, I remember they'd give me a, a lady's, a credit card with a lady's picture on it. And, and, and they had like, it would say American Express on the card, but it was a Visa card. Um, these guys, I mean, they were, they were thinking stuff through and they thought, a white guy could go into the malls and the stores and stuff, but buy stuff with his card. You know, once you just swipe it and you put it back in your pocket. So they were using me for that, and they would give me crack, or they would give me, uh, you know, some kind of drugs for it. They didn't give me much money at all, but they were supporting my my drug habit, and uh, I was kind of being used like a pawn. And, uh, that, that's kind of so. You know, I started. Uh, st the the people that they were making those cards for was supposedly the Japanese mafia in San Francisco. If there's such a thing, but. I started to get to know those guys, and one of the guys kind of taught me what he was doing, and I so I, then I learned that I, I could do I could do what he's doing, and so I, I started uh, making my own little credit cards, and uh, you know I did a little bit, nothing big. I mean I get enough to, you know maybe make three or four hundred bucks in one week, just little 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 stores trying to sell stuff, just just enough to support my habit. Using forgeries and bogus identities, Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. 
Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the housing pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. I owe $1.7 million to the government, and you know that, that's what they that's what they calculated. Uh, that's bef that's what went through a bank. You know, I only started using the bank because the people I was doing the taxes for wouldn't pay me their. I was charging them twenty percent of their refunds, and they weren't paying me. They promised to, so. You know, so you get them, you get them, you know, whatever eight thousand dollars, and they're supposed to go bring you back whatever sixteen hundred or whatever that comes to. Back and they then, wouldn't do it. Back then, uh, you, you get your refund in about seven to ten days, at least for the, the current year. You can go back three years on to get refunds if you haven't filed. See, I did people that didn't have a job. I mean, I, I was doing drug dealers, escorts. Uh, I put people down as a dog walker, a house cleaner, uh, the escorts, uh, home and personal care services. Uh, whatever your hustle was, if you're stealing copper, you know, I'm putting you down for recycling, uh, aluminum cans. <laughs> you know, I had a title for everything, you know. If you're breaking in houses, you're, you're doing house cleaning. You know what I mean? Uh, if you're just uh, sitting home at, at sitting at a crack house, babysitting, you know. Uh, but these are guys, these are, this is their real social security number, their real IDs. It's really them. It's, it's really not like them. they were, were they going out and getting people and bringing them to you yeah or? so my deal is so i'm at homeless shelter and a, and a guy comes comes through one day he comes in and he says hey i'm working for this guy this lawyer and uh he can get you stimulus money the obama stimulus money did you get yours and i go uh no i mean i, I never got it oh i i did it on, i i filed my taxes and it came on there and he goes oh you know how to do that i go yeah yeah i, I kind of and he goes because I'm, I'm gathering people for this guy and he goes i got all these he had like eight or nine app people's tax forms. And I, he said, if you could do it, because this guy ain't paying me shit. And I go, well, let me see those. And they're they're all the same. It all had $6,500 for income. And I looked at this and I go, these are all the same. He just makes copies. I mean, anybody could do this. And I I, I go, I can get more money than this guy's even getting. So next he goes, well, here, uh, why don't you take a couple of these? And I'll tell the guys, let me ask if it's okay. Because we didn't do anything without somebody's permission. I even had him sign affidavits giving their permission to have their social security, their driver's license, all that stuff for the purposes of taxes. Cause they tried to get me for identity theft. And when I kept every, every per, every client, well, I want to call them client, but every person I ever did, I had, I had a file. So they had to drop a lot of the charges. They got me really because I had had their refunds going through a Wells Fargo bank. And they told me, uh, we're not really here to get you on the taxes. You found all these loopholes. Neat. I remember they were raiding my house. They said, uh, now, uh, everybody that you got, you got like 800 people, and they all made exactly $6,500 that year. Uh, I, I don't know how you found them or how they found you. And half of them live at your post office box. That's another That's another thing. And he says, you know, uh, and why, why do you have to put 6500 Why don't you put, you know, 640 638 Oh, you wanted every dollar. You couldn't even, you couldn't even, even eight bucks you had to have that, right? I remember them telling me all this. Why they're why they're searching the house, but um, so I had a deal. Uh, if you tell anybody that if you find somebody that needs their taxes done that never had a job and hasn't filed their taxes, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Right. I, I, also, again, I'm going to call an eight hundred number to see if they owe money for child support or, or their uh, or their uh, student loans, and, and if that clears, and I, I do a little check to see if they if they file before. If they get it, because you get accepted in 10 minutes after I file. So I gave everybody 100 bucks. The phones were ringing off the hook, Matt. I ended up having three or four uh, girls answering phones, just writing down people's social and date of birth and address. I gave them 50 bucks for, just to answer the phone and write that stuff down. It got off the hook. I had to teach people how to do this. So I had nine co-defendants at a, that many people. I mean, we did thousands of them. I mean, it started off with two people that I did, and they told two friends, and I said, I'll give them a hundred bucks. Got two more friends. I'll give you another hundred bucks. And I made sure everybody got that hundred bucks. Uh, and it just, you know, that, that refer a friend program, it, it works when you're dealing with homeless people on the street and drug addicts, you know, cause I'm getting them five, $6,000. 
they're going to get two or three, two or three grand like in 10 days. So, man, they're calling me left and right. I got the whole neighborhoods of San Francisco, all the. They're getting this. They're getting this on a card, right? Yeah. Well, see, back then, this was 2010, 2009. Most of them didn't even have ID, right? Uh, uh, They uh, didn't. There was green dot. Net spend cards back then, but people didn't even have addresses. The, the people I'm dealing with, right? Some did. A few might have had a bank account or a card. Most of them did not. So I would, uh, at first, I would say, "Well, you better pay me when this comes, right?" And I stupid me in the beginning. I did all three years for them. So then they wouldn't pay me for any of them. So I, I just do one year at a time, and you give me the money off the first year, and then I'll do the other two. And and they still were burning me. Uh, so uh, I opened up a business bank account. I went and got a paid tax preparer number. I got legit and business. Uh, I got a business license, and uh, it wasn't hard to do. And I went to Wells Fargo because uh, that one guy who I copied his little idea from, he was at this Wells Fargo, and they told me that yeah, we won't have a problem with your uh, other people's tax returns coming through here as long as, if there's ever a problem, you know, then we'll, then we'll have to talk about that. And uh, I got to know the guy, and he said, so you're taking twenty percent. And uh, they get 80. Why don't you just let me do the work for you? So every week I would give this guy, Jose, and this guy, Edward, uh, here's the names. I got 27 people this week. He'd do the math for me. He'd cut in cashier's checks. And in return, I told them to open up a bank account with Wells Fargo. He had a second chance program. So they'd go down to Wells Fargo. I mean, there'd be, I don't know, sometimes 80 people all lined up at the bank. And they got mad at me because they go, we can't cash all these checks. These people want their checks cashed. We don't have that much money in the bank. So that got to be a problem. Uh, so then the manager of the bank got in on a deal. He started referring me people. And um, when I kind of died, they, they, they uh, had to know something was wrong. No, here's the thing. I, they, I didn't know that. They, they, so they told me you got to go through. a. Um, I, when they were raiding my house and stuff and I got, you know, indicted, I said, if I don't have the money, I go to HR block. I don't have the money for my refund. They'll take it out of my refund. Wells Fargo's doing that for me. They go, oh, no, no, no. See, what you're doing is like laundering money. You got to go through a government bank. It's called Santa Barbara Tax Group. And I said, well, I'll do that. And the guys go, well, we're kind of raiding your house right now. A little, a little too late. I didn't know about this place. Uh, I don't even know if they would have let me do it. They might only let the big companies do it. But um, so all the people at that Wells Fargo bank got fired. Uh, like, like you know, five or six of them. <laughs> well, plus I bought them laptops for Christmas. And I remember they go, we've got to do this in the parking lot. We've got cameras. We're not allowed to take gifts. But uh, at first, the two guys... The, the were the business banker guys that were working with me, they got, right. got promoted to like assistant manager. One guy was manager, and the manager got promoted to a general manager. And because all those people I did opened up bank accounts, so you know they're looking good. And that was yeah, the, I mean, they had that program where uh, they were getting people to open up bank accounts because they were getting fees, and they were, and the more bank accounts you had, the more fees they could charge. And sure, sure. Um, Okay. Uh, I mean, did you have any idea? Like, how long did this go on? About a year before they raided the house. Um, you know, I told you I was in a homeless shelter. I started doing this. Man, within two weeks, I'm, I'm renting a motel with this other guy, Joel. Uh, when we each got our own room. And then I, I started, I mean, the money started coming in before I knew. I bought a car within three weeks. Uh, my little 20% was, you know, uh, I don't know. I give people about eight thousand bucks, so you know, fifteen hundred a person. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I've done thousands. I mean, I don't want to say too much, but I'm off probation now. They, I think they've got me. But uh, a lot of them I did before I opened up the bank account. But I even paid rent on a house a year in advance. Uh, the PG&E, that's the power company. I gave, I gave them a check for five thousand. I wanted to cover my ass, so in case anything happened, at least I got a place for for a year. When they did raid my house, like 30 cars up and down the block and uh, black SUVs, I think they were. It was the Treasury Department. You familiar with those guys? No. No, no, no. Mine was FBI Secret Service. Oh, okay. Well, that's Treasury came to my house. Um, they had been watching me and, you know, watching my internet and tapping my phone. All, all my little, I thought I was uh, just paranoid from too much drug, but no, there was a silver owl in the tree and the head used to spin. I thought, I know somebody's watched me. They told me, yeah, that was us too. All your, all the little things that you uh, were paranoid about, they were true. They were listening on my phone. They were watching me through the computer. Um, yeah, they had been watching me for about three months. Uh, and then they, I thought I was so legal that I kept all the money in the bank and they froze everything. Uh, 
Yeah, but okay, so, but you know what you're doing is illegal. Yeah, but I'm get. I got the Wells Fargo Bank. I'm walking in the bank, and you know they're telling me, "Oh, Mr. Cowgill, they're coming up to me here. What can we do?" They're kissing my ass, and I'm thinking. Yeah, but they weren't. They don't work for the IRS. I know. I and and you know I didn't re research everything. I had a business permit, paid. You know, I even went and took a little test at at, at the county uh, for for paid tax preparer for like next year, and I I thought it was legal. I, I knew it. Was, I knew it was like too easy. You know, these little loopholes I found, but, you know, these guys really didn't have jobs. But, um, you know, in my mind, you know, well, they came up with money that year. I mean, it was selling drugs or, you know, escorting or, you know, whatever, whatever robbing houses, stealing copper and, you know, Cadillac converters or whatever. But, I mean, still, you didn't want to pay their taxes for that. I'm just helping the government. <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh. I'm, you know, <laughs> my head was, I thought it was Robin Hood, steal from the rich, which is the government, and give to the poor, which is the drug addicts, right? That's all. <laughs> so when they come in, they raid you. Did they arrest you? I got a uh, no. I got a call from. I told you I had nine other people. Uh, one guy called me and he said, "Hey, uh, they're here uh, raiding my house, and I think they're going to hit you next. They've already hit went to Mike's and Joe's and David's and Sarah's. They, they, I was the last house. They did nine houses in one day. They had different you know parties doing this. They didn't get to my house till about three o'clock in the afternoon." I already, I already knew they were coming. And here, I still I still held my ground. I thought, you know, they got nothing on me. I even had a sign. IRS, start right here. Here's the pile. Here's all my files. Number two, start here. This is what you guys are going to need here for evidence. And still, you know, I thought it was Mr. I, I was kind of turned into a pompous little asshole. I thought they had nothing on me. So. I was wrong. I, I'm saying, did they arrest you? No. They, they raided you. They, they let you go. They made me stay in the garage. They said, "You can. we're going to be in your house for a while. Uh, we need your keys. They had me turn over the keys. They said, you can go. Uh, you're not taking your car. And uh, we need your wallet and your phone. But you can go. And maybe eight hours will be done. Or you can stay here. So I stayed there. And they kept me in my garage. And they just kept coming out with uh, evidence. There two two uh, agents would watch me. And they'd come out with evidence from the office. Well, what's this? What's this, Mr. Cowboy? What's this here? What's this here? And they just kept coming out like... I don't play with my mind. Maybe I should have walked. But they even told me we're not here to arrest you. We're just here to uh, seize evidence. Did um, they Did they take your car? Uh, they wanted to, the but I they, they, I bought it before I started doing this crime because uh, they found the pink slip. And they, oh, he, he, he owned this for three years already. So uh, I, I bought it before. It was, it's a $500 car. They didn't know about another one that was in my girlfriend's name. So they didn't get that one. We had moved that that day. Um and uh, my girlfriend was at a Safeway store in a, um, uh, sitting in her car doing a scratch-off, and uh, undercovers came and got her. I had a friend that was staying in one of the rooms. They found him at a uh, – where was he? He's at a bowling alley or something outside of his car. They, they've been following all these people. Uh, they made a – they didn't arrest anybody out of all the nine people. They just grabbed all – I mean, they took my TV. They took uh, – it was almost Christmas time, and I remember they took all the Christmas presents that were under the tree. My girlfriend, I just bought her her son like an Xbox. They took everything. My widescreen TV off the wall, all the computers. They basically left uh, the furniture. You know, they took everything. Um. So what happened? Did you get a lawyer? Did you just kick back? Uh, and I still. You... They froze all my bank accounts, but I, I had maybe fifteen thousand bucks in loose money, kind of. So I did go to a lawyer. It cost $5,000 just to answer some questions, really. They said, uh, the lawyer, it was a lady. She said, uh, well, I know, I, you know what lawyers, I guess they learn us in law school. Oh, I, I know the DA. I know the district attorney. I know the prosecutor. I mean, they're, they're all, they all know them. My, my brother-in-law is married to the sister of the judge. And don't worry, I know everybody. Well, that's all great. What does that do for me? So they, she used that spiel on me. You know, oh, I know everybody. Well, of course they do. They all drink in a bar together and all that. But, um. Uh, I gave her five thousand bucks, and basically all she did was call call up the uh, treasury and tell them, "Hey, I'm representing Mr. Cowgill, and if you need to talk to him, you're going to go through me now." And she said, I, I, "They're going to probably indict you. Uh, it could be a year, could be six months." And uh, that's really all she did. And by the time a year, it was a year. And by the time the year came by, um, she called me. Uh, she wouldn't answer my calls the whole time. I could call her like. Maybe every three months, she said I could call her two months to check in and see if I, anything happened. She'd always say, no news is good news. 
So the day I get indicted, she calls me, says, you got to show up to court. They're going to sign you out on a bond, and I'm not going to represent you anymore unless you have $75,000. I had nothing. And uh, that year I paid for the house. I remember I said I paid a year ahead on the rent. Uh, that year went by, and then I, pay, I paid another rent right before they came. So I had two years paid in advance on the house. Otherwise, shit, I would have been out, out homeless, um, which I ended up being homeless after I got indicted because the landlord evicted me as soon as uh, that little deal was up, and he knew about the uh, the uh, the raid on the house and everything. They got rid of me as soon as they, they sent me an eviction notice. And I tried to sell some of the furniture I had in there. And I had all these friends when I had the money and the drugs. And they're gone. Uh, next thing you know, man, I'm, I'm sitting in a uh, – I go get indicted, and they told me I got a court in two weeks. I'm sitting in the park homeless again. I just got a little backpack with some pictures of my family members that aren't even alive anymore, some clothes, some underwear, nothing, man. Um, I got a cell phone that's got like 5% power left on it. I remember in a – because I got a text about going, to, I had to be to court in the morning, and they uh, they said there was an emergency pre-trial, wanted to see me in court. Anyways, I didn't go. Um, I had no money to get there, and if I did, I at that point, I, I just wasn't going to go. I was going to go on the run with what? I don't know. I just uh, So I had warrants out for me now, and uh, I hadn't even started really the indictment process. But uh, they, I ended up turning myself in couple weeks later and uh they let me do a get out of jail and do a drug program a right program and then i had to stay in sober living houses the whole time until i got sentenced which was four years until four i got four years before you got sentenced yeah and you, before that it was a year before when they raided my house so that's five years your life on hold but you know i needed a, I, I i slipped one time on on the drugs and they made me do another program a 90-day program and uh, but then after that, I I haven't done it. I've been good. I've been a good boy as far as that goes. So what happened? Like ultimately, you get like a letter, or they called you, or they just come pick you up. When when I was uh, out on I, bond, uh, oh, what you said it was took four years before you got what sentenced? Four years on pretrial, right? Five years if you count when you first uh, before you get indicted. And I mean, pre pretrial had me pissing in a cup. Uh, Three, four times a week sometimes. Uh, I pissed it back up for us. Uh, so that was back in 2011. It's, you know, I got raided in 2011. 2012, I started pretrial. Uh, it's 2023 now. I'm standing there 12 years, and I only did really three months, three years in the, in the prison. So for 12 years, they, they've owned me, though, you know. Right. Well, I'm, I'm saying, like, when you, they, they send you a letter or something saying, hey, can you, you know, or, you know, you knew, hey, I got to show up at this time. I'm gonna plead guilty. Oh, as far as that goes, the lawyer say like, well, what happened? They kept putting it off because uh, they wanted to make sure I went last. So I had nine co-defendants. Uh, by the way, five went to prison. Uh, the other four, you know, you figure it out. You know, they made their deals. One was my uh, fiance at the time, and uh, she wore a wire. She told me she called me like I don't know a couple of days after she wore a wire on me after I had already take the uh, responsibility, you know, where you sit at the table and you basically tell on yourself, did you do that? Yeah. yeah. To get the two points off. So uh, I told her, hey, they've already got everything on me. You know, you know, I told her, I, I was kind of mad, but it wasn't mad. I said, you know, you do what you got to do. And they've got everything on me. If, if, if you didn't meet me, you wouldn't be looking at prison time right now. Right. That's how I felt about it. Uh, friends of mine said, well, she was on drugs too. She was going to go to prison. I, I don't know if she was going to go to prison. So uh, I, I can't say that, but uh, I felt that it was my it was my kind of fault that uh, I brought her along with this. I, I got her a, a started doing her own tax business. It, she, it was called She File, her and her, her girlfriend, and they started their own business. And she kept doing the business um, after she got indicted. She didn't care. <laughs> she ended up getting 29 months. At right. w, and that's after she whatever deals she made. Uh, I think whatever evidence when she wore the wire and stuff, they already had everything on me. I don't know what else they were looking for. I, I know they were looking for money that I had hidden. I wish I would have known in advance. I would have took it all out. But you know as well as I do, you can't just go to the bank and say, "Give me a hundred grand." Right. You know. Well, so so when so you they gave you a lawyer, uh, a court appointed one. Now I went through four of those because there was always a conflict of interest. 
with the nine co-defendants. Right. One knows this guy and this guy's that guy. And one, you know, and there was the public defender's office. I started with them and then they gave me a court appointed lawyer. And then uh, they apparently uh, one of my co-defendants got assigned to that, that lawyer as well. Uh, but it was a different, it wasn't on the same uh, ticket. You know, uh, there, there was three of us on one ticket and then the other remaining six had their own little uh, court tickets. And I'm, I'm tickets, not the right word, but uh case number and stuff. Right. And then they separate all three of us. And then we went on our own. Um, it was going to be some joint thing, but they decided I had a leadership role, which they dropped at the very end. And they just charged me with wire fraud. Uh, I, I don't know why they dropped the leadership role, but I'm glad they did. Probably was looking at more time. But uh, so I, I knew when I was going to get sentenced, right. uh, uh, you know, and, and our, that's where our dad Dan came in and Walt, Walt Pablo. Do you know him? Walt Pablo? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you do because he's been on the show. Of course you do. So those guys helped me out. I had no money to pay him, and they helped me out. You know, Walt put a hundred bucks on my books every single month. Never missed a month. Nice. Yeah, and but he really helped me. He wrote me letters. He, he'd take my phone calls from prison. You know, we still talk. And uh, I mean, those guys inspired me to start this channel and to help other people. You know, because um, I, oh. I for years I just took phone calls and I helped write letters to the courts and stuff for guys and. I, you know, I wasn't charging money or anything. I just wanted to, you know, pay it all forward, you know. So so how much time did you end up uh, getting? 52-month sentence. I, I got it I got it reduced. I was category, my criminal charge, uh, my, I was cr category four, you know, on the one through six criminal criminal uh, history. Yeah. So I was, I was category four because I'd been arrested 11 times for, you know, just little, little, like I said, $20 worth of drugs. But that gave me a category four, but the judge dropped switched from four to one because I did a lot while I was on pretrial. You know, I I I, I went to the two residential drug programs. I lived in sober living houses. I was feeding homeless on Friday nights. We'd go uh, in a, in a van with this church group and we handed out blankets and food and everything. And I volunteered at Alcoholics Anonymous at their main central office. I was cleaning their toilets and bathrooms and answering their phones and stuff like that. I, I did a whole lot of other stuff. Um, I was cooking uh, for a, a residential drug program for free for, for, well, for room and board. They gave me a little bed to stay in, but I, you know, I worked like 40 hours a week with no, for no paycheck. So I did a whole lot of stuff to impress the judge that I was, you know, trying to change my ways. And uh, she said, she, that's what she told me. And uh, she went from cat, uh, category four to category one. And uh, I went from 96 months to 52 so it was the low end. It was fifty-one to seventy when you got to category one on my my points were twenty-four on the uh, on the uh, you know the numbers. Uh, so I still didn't know if I was going to a camp. When I got my paperwork, uh, I got sentenced. Uh, they told me I have sixty days to turn myself into self-surrender, and uh, RDAP Dan and uh, Walt Pablo helped me get uh, the RDAP out of the way. You know, on my PSR, so I knew I was going to do RDAP, but. Uh, I didn't know where it was going. My paperwork said FCI Florence. And I found out now that all the camps are connected to a bigger prison. That's kind of the headquarters. And that's like the hotel that you check into and then they'll skip escort you over to the camp. So anybody that's going to camp, if it says FCI something on you're, you're not going to the FCI, you're going to the camp, but that's the headquarters. So even my lawyer didn't know that, you know, that I called him. He didn't know the lawyer I had at the end, the fourth lawyer, he was a prick. Uh, I remember I called him up and said, uh, this paperwork tells me I can go straight to the camp, uh, but I don't know about the FCI. The FCI. He's, it doesn't matter. you got to turn yourself into the marshals. I, I said, no, I'm supposed to self-surrender to the camp. And uh, I think our dad, Dan, called up my lawyer, and he got pissed. He called me back, and he says, who's this guy telling me telling me my business, right? You call me one more time or anything back. He said, you're going to turn yourself into the marshals, and you're going to goddamn FCI and leave me alone. Everything you said was wrong. That's lawyers for you. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, you you get pricks in you know every profession, but mo a lot of lawyers can definitely be assholes. Um, so, all right. So you went to the what went to the camp, and you know what happened. You you got there the first day. Yeah. That was surreal, man. You know you can you can prepare all you want for four years. You know, uh, were you locked up during your pre-trial or were you out? You, you were probably locked up, right? I was locked up. Yeah, of course. It's different on the outside. You you know, got four different lawyers. They're telling you probation one week. 
and they're telling you 12 years the next week. And, uh, you know, a year goes by, two years goes, three years goes by. Nobody's believing that you're going to prison anymore. Oh, you just you're on you're on probation, man. No, I'm on pretrial. Yeah, whatever. Pretrial probation. They don't they don't they don't know. And they think since you've been going to court for three years, why would they lock you up now? You've been doing good. You don't get it, guys. One day I'm going to prison, and nobody it's like nobody believed me. I, I called people up from the prison. Are you happy now? I'm in prison. You were wrong. <laughs> but uh, you know, it got to be like that. Um but that first day, I remember I had a friend in Colorado, Colorado Springs. He lived nearby, and I, I stayed with him a couple nights. I took a Greyhound bus up there, and uh, he drove me to prison in the morning. Got there about 8.30, 9 in the morning. Uh, I was supposed to turn myself in at noon, but I was told if you get there a little early, they'll process you in and out. And uh, Walt Pablo told me that, and he says, the day you leave, you're going to leave at 6 a.m., so you'll get the hours back. But if you show up at noon, like it says, they're doing a guard change. It's lunch hour. You may be thrown in the shoe across the street or something until, you know, they're ready to take you into the camp. But if you go early, you'll be in and out. And he was right. About 30 minutes, I was processed, changed, dressed out. But I remember he dropped me off. There's a there's a gate, uh, like a little booth with a thing that goes up and down. And we drive up to the gate, and uh, and I tell the, the, the officer in the gate, I'm here to turn myself in. I have to self-surrender. He says, well, you can get out of the car, just wait by the side of the road, and we'll call somebody. And they wouldn't let us in anywhere part of the prison. So I said my goodbyes to my friend. He took off, and I'm standing there at the gate. And a little white pickup truck pulled up, and I, I said, that can't be for me. A lady yeah. rolls down the window. She said, hey, get on in. You're, you're here, you're here, uh, you're here self-surrender, right, Mr. Calgill? I, I go, yeah. She goes, get in. And I get in. I remember at first, do I have to put my seatbelt on? No, we're just going to the camp. Don't worry about it. She's really nice. And uh, we go up there, and she goes, yeah, just get out of the car. We're uh, coming to the side door here. You know, we'll get you checked in. And I said, um, am I going to the camp? She goes, yeah, what would you think? I said, well, my paperwork says FCI. She's, no, you're going to the camp, man. She goes, and I go, you're not like, I don't have handcuffs. And she goes, man, this is the camp. Relax. She says, it's going to be fine. This is my first impression. I'm, I'm tripping. So she opens up the door. She goes, there's uh, some chairs there. Just have a seat. Somebody be with you. An inmate comes up. Uh, I remember it was a black guy, and he's talking. He's, I didn't, prison, I didn't know politics. I'd just been watching, you know, Shawshank Redemption and, you know, Escape from Alcatraz and Oz and all this stuff all my life. And even right. though I heard camps were like cupcakes, I was scared shitless, man. Yeah. A black guy comes up to me. He goes, gives me a clipboard, and he goes, hey, whatever. My name's Leonard. How you doing? I go, I'm doing all right. I can talk to you. And he goes, what do you mean you can talk to me? I go, you know, I'm white. He goes, hi, this is a camp. Again, it's a camp. So I had to fill out some information. And he says, you hungry? And I go, sure. He brings me a lunch. And it's it's like salami and turkey on a, like on a, on a hoagie roll. And I'm all, no bologna sandwich? And he goes, man, we got it good here. And then a guard comes down. And he says, hey, man, I got to dress you out and get you in. And so he says, you take off your clothes. He goes, you know, you got to bend over and cough. And he was really nice. And he goes, now, what do you want me to do with these clothes? Send him home, or I go, no, I don't really have a home. He says, okay, we'll just donate them. And he says, the shoes look okay, though. I think you can wear those. He grabs them, and he goes, hey, yeah, put them on. I mean, I would, have, I could have shoved drugs in them. Who knows? Uh, he was too nice. Everybody was too damn nice. Uh, and I'm going, something's wrong here, man. It, it can't be like this. And and it pretty much was, except for the COs that like to do shakedowns, lockdowns, remind you that you're in prison. But when you're dealing with the staff at a camp, the administration, the doctors, and you know, the educators and stuff like that, and the chaplains, they treat you just like a person. I, it was kind of like that the whole time at camp. If you treat them, you know, with respect and dignity, that you get it back. Because at a camp, we don't have a fence. There's just an out of bounds sign. So any contraband that comes in there, we don't use the staff. We don't use the guards or the COs. They know they're going home that night. They're not. Their family's not going to get threatened. You know, they're not going to get manipulated. Uh, the inmates do all that. So, you know, they treat you back. They treat you like that. Um, and plus, it's kind of nonviolent people. I'm sure some of them had share share of violence. They're not there because of that, though. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, 
identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent. How a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. I know at a low, it's a little different. You were at the medium. The politics, a little different, right? Yeah, but I mean, that's nothing. That, that had, like that stuff. The nice thing is, is you know, you're either participating in it or you're not. And I just don't participate in anything. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I had a job. And, you know, you it, when I went to the medium, really the medium and the low, like you're, I'm a white collar guy, a white, white collar guy. Yeah, yeah. Who's college educated who speaks well. And so, you know, you become kind of an authority where they don't want to mess with you because they might need you to, Hey, can you read mm -hmm. over my paperwork? Can you help me write something? Can you help me figure out how to do this? Can you teach a, teach a course? Can you, can I ask you a question? So, you know, you're, you're like a, a non enemy combatant in a war zone. Like there's people shooting each other and or stabbing each other and getting into fights and, but it has nothing to do with me. You're just, I'm just walking through the, the middle of it and they all kind of just move around me. And you know, they're not interested in having a problem with, with me because that guy's got nothing to do with what we got going on. So, you know, that was three years at the medium. And, and then when I went to the camp, it was pretty much the same thing at the camp, except it's a better, it's a less violent crowd. Although yeah, I'm sorry, when cool. I went to the low, when I went to the low, when I went from the medium to the low, I meant, when I went from the medium to the low, like the low is a less violent crowd, but it's funny because people got, they were still stabbing each other there. They were, it just wasn't as frequent or as I, I want to say as brutal, but to be honest, I saw some really bloody stuff at the, at the low, but it just didn't happen as much. Yeah. Well, we had bloody stuff at the camp too, but usually gambling debts or drug debts or something. Yeah. It's stuff that you brought on yourself. Like it's yeah. not like random fights well that's not true at the um at the low one time this guy attacked another guy like it was it was actually comical so this i mean the way it worked out like this guy had snitched so there was like these two guys were on the same case and this guy snitched on this guy so this guy goes away for like 15 years this guy gets like three years goes through gets out catches another charge gets himself like whatever seven eight nine ten years goes back to prison. But when he gets there, they ask, have you cooperated against anybody? He said no, because on that case, he hadn't. So he wasn't understanding that they're saying, look, is there somebody in this prison that might want to hurt you? Yeah. And he, so he was, but, but they'd say what they said, have you, do you have a separatist on anybody? Have you cooperated against anybody? He was like, oh no, I didn't cooperate against anybody on that case. So they put him on the yard. Well, this guy, who's still doing time for the first sentence, first crime, sees him and goes and like gets a, gets like a lock, you know, gets a lock and a sock and ties it around his arm, his wrist and comes up and then finds him in the rec yard and just brow, 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 just beats the hell out of him, beats him bloody. And the guy, you know, of course he's sitting there like, you know, he had, he had no clue that, Hey, yeah, that guy from seven or eight years ago, that you cooperated against is still doing that time. <laughs> so, you know, to him, that was like, Oh, that's long gone. No, not for him. And it's not. So anyway, um, yeah. So you saw stuff like that, that would happen. People would, I did. And you know, the Pisces kind of run the camp. You know, you know what a Pisces is, right? I, I don't know if they have them in Florida. <laughs> yeah, they, they have them, but you know, it's like, you know, run like, I don't know, even, you know, at a low, like it's basically like these guys are associated with this gang. These guys are associated with that one. But I just didn't pay attention to any of that. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, and so I never went to a camp. I'm sure it's even there's even less of that at the camp. 
Oh yeah, there's less of that. When I say they run the camp, I mean they're they're like, they're like you, you want something from the outside, you go talk to a pilot. He'll have it here in two days. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Uh, they're they're running the the it's a business. They're not really they have their meetings that are never you can't go in. They'll right. take over a TV room and they'll have some two guys at the door. You know, and uh, I've been told by some of my friends now that we're out. You know, they're they're beating the fuck out of somebody in there for whatever reason, whatever they did. You know. Uh, but they handle their own. Um, you don't, they keep it out of the eyes of anybody, so you don't really know what's going on. And that, and that's about as deep as it goes. All everybody else is just freelancers. I mean, probably twenty percent is white collar. Most of it's drug mules or uh, you know uh, higher ups that got there. You know they're there for conspiracy or RICO act because they were three cars, two Mercedes, and no job, so they can't get them on anything to stick. So they use that conspiracy that the feds were famous for. You know, so you did. So you did like what? Three years? Uh, yeah, it was fifty-two months. Actually, uh, with like I did the RDAP. That took a year off, uh, and then they give you six months halfway house. And uh, the first app act was just starting then, so I didn't get any credit for that. Plus, um, you had good time. I got my good time. I did twenty-six months at the camp, and then six months halfway house, and then you start your probation. Uh, a lot of people don't know when you're in the halfway house, you're still an inmate. You're just there. Yeah, yeah. There. That's why whenever people, that's why I always say 13 years because I was in the halfway house for seven months. And to be honest with you, I'd have rather been in prison. I've I, a lot of people feel that way. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I had no money or anything other than what Matt, Walt Pablo gave me a hundred bucks a month. And they started taking that for my restitution. So I kind of needed the job and uh, I got a job washing dishes, uh, 19 bucks an hour in San Francisco. Uh, at a St. Anthony's dining room. And it was just like working uh, the, ch the chow hall, you know, washing the dishes there with the same machine, same kind of trays, <laughs> nothing changes, but I'm getting 19 bucks an hour, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just, it's the same, it's the same way. Like, I'm glad I went to the halfway house. Like, I would have rather stayed in prison, but I'm glad I went because I needed to get a job and save some money. Yeah. yeah. So it, but, but it was, it was worse being at the halfway house than it was being in, in. Oh, prison. yeah. Ours was horrible. It was three stories, at, at about 400 people lived there. Uh, I don't know how many Choma registered child molesters were in about 40 because we looked up on the phone one day and uh, some girl, me and some girls were talking and they, man, they said, Oh, I didn't know they're here. And they went to go talk to the management of the halfway house. And they uh, said, if you bring that up one more time, you're going back to prison. Yeah. And they're so, so we don't, feel, we don't feel safe here. You know, eh, oh, well, no. don't, don't, um, take, don't come back to prison, you know? I was gonna say, but I mean, plus not just that, like they're child, they're 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 child molesters. So you're an adult woman, you're fine. Yeah, you know? <laughs> at your age, you're okay. But you um, know. so uh, so you did that, you got out. Where'd you go when you left? Halfway house. Uh, I was in San Francisco, so uh, my probation office came to visit me, and uh, that sober living kind of a uh, place that I was on during pretrial. I, I've been writing them letters and stuff, so they had a place for me. So I went to stay with them, and it was in Oakland, um, um, which wasn't bad for me because I already knew everybody there. Uh, and I and I continued that job dishwashing. Uh, they had a drug program down the street, and they uh, actually gave me a job cooking for $24 an hour. Then the pandemic hit, and, uh, you know, I lost. they closed that place down. And uh, for about a year and a half, I was just uh, collecting 600 bucks a month unemployment like a lot of people were doing. And, you know, I was kind of happy to see the whole world on lockdown because I had been on lockdown and now it's your turn, man. <laughs> you know? So, all right. Well, what happened then? I mean, you uh, now what are you doing? Like you well, started a YouTube channel. Yeah, I started that at the Sober Living House. And uh, I, I, so I just wanted to do a couple videos about my first day in prison, uh, you know, and then I started getting comments and I put my phone number up there. Anybody needed help. And, and it's just been going ever since. I've just been doing one after another, and uh, one day I get a call from uh, uh, a lady here in New Mexico, and uh, so a friend of mine was was doing community service there that I did time with. Apparently, in New Mexico, the feds make everybody do at least 100 hours of community service when you get out of prison, regardless if it's state prison or federal prison. Uh, I, I didn't have to do that, but they, have to, they do it here at their halfway house. So he told this lady to watch my show, and uh, she started watching, and I get a call. From her one day and uh she said i've been watching the show and uh tom says he knows you he has the time together and uh she says would you like to come on my facebook thing she does a facebook show and, and talk about you know what your you know your experiences 
I did that. Then I had her on my show. A couple months go by. I'm talking to her back and forth, and she offers me a job in New Mexico. I said, well, I'm still on probation. She said, but I think you could make a difference out here. I, she said, I'll, I know probation here. I'll call your probation. She worked it all out, and uh, probation gave me a transfer. And uh, when uh, she uh, she actually they actually uh, helped pay for the I'm in an apartment now. I pay 800 bucks a month. Where I was living, I was paid 950 dollars a month to share a room with three other guys in a, in a house. You know, in in Oakland, uh, uh, one refrigerator. We had eight guys in a two bedroom place. Uh, you know, it's it's so expensive out there in the Bay Area. You're, you're never going to get ahead unless you're, uh, you know, working as a in the tech industry or something. And I do have a college education, man. I forgot to mention that. All those jobs I was going to college part time. So uh, I got an AA degree in a in advertising and marketing and broad. And then I took I got another one in broadcasting. Uh, and I went to Columbia School of Broadcasting, but none of that ever I never pursued it. So this YouTube channel is probably the closest thing I got me. I, I don't know. I've been watching, listening to talk radio since I was about 12 years old. Uh, you know, all the uh, right wing stuff, even some of the left wing and Art Bell and all that. And always wanted to be a talk show host. And took, it took, <laughs> it took I guess it took going to prison. To, I guess I'm kind of like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, so that's where I, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But, uh, I've lost. Now I'm stuck. Uh, so the YouTube channel—the YouTube channel—you thought, hey, it might be a good fit for you, and you've been putting up videos. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've interviewed people before they go in into prison. Now, I've probably ten guys have come out of prison that I interviewed. You know, and uh, I make—I'm making friends. I'm—I'm I'm making. I know people call me and they just said, "Yeah, I've been watching your videos, and I gotta thank you. I get two or three a day, Matt. Sometimes five. Nothing more than." Five, nothing more that I can't handle, but they're every day. I mean, that's I know this one phone's been ringing here, and I see it's a, it's a, there's a text that says something about watching YouTube video, and uh, I get them all the time, Matt, and they just say that I'm, they can get through this pretrial now, or people that got out of prison, they said, you know, uh, my wife always want to know what's like in prison. We watch your channel, and you know, I just get them all, and it make it gives me a purpose in life. Now I feel like I'm. Hey, I helped somebody else out. I made a difference in somebody else's life. So I'm, I'm, I'm 59 years old, Matt. You know, I'm feel, I used to think I'm all washed up, been to prison, jail 11 times, right? Uh, eviction, uh, you know, car repossessed, all this bad credit. I mean, who would want, you know, what good am I to the world? Well, I think I'm finding that out now when I get these calls every day. If I have a bad day or a bad week, man, I just talk to these people and it just makes a difference, man. Right. Well, it does. And, you know, I've been writing character reference letters for him and helping him get into programs. Anything I could do, kind of the stuff RDAP Dan does. And I've been doing that for a couple of years. And RDAP Dan told me, you know, you, you just start charging for this stuff. And I said, man, I'm not going to charge what you guys charge, but I'll, I've been hearing it. So I started doing that a few, oh, four months ago. I've had uh, nine clients now. So I'm helping you guys out at a fraction of the cost. But uh, it's a right. lot of work. But, uh, so I, I was I switched from full time to part time at Wings for Life. Uh, the CEO and founder uh, been asked to step aside. Of what? Uh, uh, from her organization that she founded. Since now she's a five hundred one c. Is that correct? Is that the, so she used to be a ministry. She switched to the five hundred one c to get government money and stuff. So what we're hearing, I, I had to go in front of the board uh, two weeks ago, and everybody kind of told their story because I actually quit about a month ago because she was yelling and screaming at me and belittling me and it had been going on every day. And there was at least 14 people that felt the same way. Everybody kind of quit on her and uh, she'd become like a Hitler. It's her way or the highway. And then we found out she tells everyone she's poor. So now we're finding out she owns hotels, apartments. Uh, there's $3 million missing that the government gave. The organization you, you work for? Yeah. So this, the board has asked her to step aside if she doesn't, they're going to bring up criminal charges. So now I'm going, I'm going back. So I haven't been with them for probably a month and a half now. Uh, it's a long story that day. Uh, I had it up to here with her and I just, she yelled and screamed at me for not putting a comma after the word Albuquerque. I mean, yelled and screamed at me in front of everybody. Like, like I burned down her house and I'm not the first person she's done it to. And you know, that was, she was making us work weekends and doing these events and charity things. 
uh, for free. And if we didn't show up, then we were going to get fired. So it got it got pretty bad. So, And when 14 other people showed up at this board meeting, I said, wow, I didn't know they were all felt feeling the same way. So if there's a big changes, a friend of mine who I did time with, I got him a job there. He's going to be the new director. <laughs> and uh, he's from Florence. So I'm happy for him. He's a real smart guy. He's been to MIT and all that. But he made his mistakes that got him into prison. But now he's, you know, so we're going to reboot this Wings for Life and give it a new brand. And uh, now we finally get to use our ideas. Uh, this lady wouldn't take anybody else's ideas. So anyways, I, I hope she doesn't watch this. because anyway, I don't want her to retaliate. I, I got a whole neighborhood, uh, the Tenderloin of San Francisco and most of East Oakland, all, all right. money back. Uh, you know, so I think we probably did. Oh, 2,000 tax returns for people. And each one of those was going back three years. So that's 2,000 homeless drug addicts that had money that year. They were they were living like You know, most of them spent it all in three days. I mean, you're, you're doing God's work. You help, you're just helping poor people. Yeah, I'm a lot, I help most of them. I mean, drug dealers are bringing their customers to me because they know they're going to spend the money back with them. <laughs> yeah, it's just about people helping people. Yeah, I mean, some of them actually you know, used that money to come up. They bought a car, got got in, you know, first and last months ran on a place. Uh, you know, some of them, some of them did, did they used the money wisely. But most of them, uh, now nah, they just blew it, had a good time. You know, bought new rims for their car or something, gold chains, whatever. A lot of them, uh, they told me I did help them out. But um, now I'm really trying to help people legally. Legally, uh, I mean, they broke the law and they're going to prison, but the legal end. All right, I feel like we're at the end of our rope here. Hey, if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos like this. Leave me a message in the comment section and I will return them. If you want to email me, my email address is in the description box. Colby will leave the link to Sean's YouTube channel in the description box. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys watching. Buried by the US government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services Fund, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the US government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates Confidential informants, working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed, a twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible.
Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic conman against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible. Matthew B. Cox is a con man, incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP. A drug program in name only, RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The program. How a con man survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' cult of RDAP. Available now on Amazon and Audible. If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.